Um, good evening. Um, welcome to uh, this lecture. My name is Steve Walcock. I'm uh, taking the place um, of uh, um, no, the no, uh, normal chairman, Peter Sutherland, who is not able to be here today, unfortunately. Um, I'm very pleased to introduce Lord Britton um, to speak today on the topic of uh, the Doha Round. It's alive and more important than ever. Um, Lord Britton is Vice Chairman of um, UBS. Um, he's just come into the end of a period of six months advising uh, the British government on international trade policy. As uh, many of you will know, Lord Britton uh, was a, an MP here in the, in the UK where he um, held various ministerial posts. He was Chief Secretary to the Treasury. Secretary of State for Trade and Industry from 1985 to 1986, so at the beginning of the, the previous uh, Uruguay-Iran negotiation. Um, he then moved to Brussels, where he was member of the European Commission from 1989 to 1999 and vice president, uh, working in a number of fields, competition and financial institutions, uh, but in, from 1993 onwards, external trade uh, and uh, e external economic affairs, and from 1995 to 99, he was responsible for um, trade policy in the European Commission. Um, I remember um, 10 years ago nearly now, um, Lord Britain came to speak here in 1996 uh, and he was making the case for a new round of multilateral trade negotiations uh, in 1996. So with that sort of background and experience, uh, and having been at the beginning of this current process and seen it uh, and lived through vital stages of it, I think there are few people better qualified to talk on this topic uh, than himself. So I'm very pleased to introduce him. Well, Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to you all and thank you for taking the time to join me this evening. At the end of uh, August of last year, I took a phone call from a good friend telling me that I'd shortly be receiving a phone call from his good friend, the Prime Minister, asking me to take a sabbatical from my normal work as Vice Chairman of UBS Investment Bank to become his trade advisor. And now I'm literally in the last hours of that assignment. On Monday, I return to the banking world. So I'm really pleased to have this opportunity to reflect on the highlights of a busy six months, share my thoughts on the future of international trade, and let me tell you in advance, attempt to enlist your active support for the uh, Doha round of trade negotiations. Now, my task in these six months that I've been in government has been to help to define an overarching trade and investment strategy. Much, but not all, of what I've done is reflected in the white paper published earlier this month. I'm sure that you've all read it from cover to cover, but just in case there's anybody who's missed out the odd page, please do read it. It has the admirable qualities of being not only very informative but also quite short and I like to think unlike 
and many white papers actually quite readable. It includes references to many of the areas I've been working on in the last few months, including improving access to trade finance and the overall package of support that we give exporters, encouraging inward investment and working to ensure that migration policy does not deter important foreign investors, reducing red tape within the UK and at its borders, and increasing coordination between the group of Whitehall departments who have made trade a priority. And on the international side, advocating a more open single market in Europe, supporting EU free trade agreement negotiations, furthering the emphasis on commercial diplomacy and high-level interventions to improve market access, and saving the best until last, forming and implementing a strong strategy to push for progress on the Doha trade round, which seeks to liberalize world trade to a greater extent than ever before. I won't attempt to discuss all those subjects today, as I want to focus on the Doha round, but you are of course welcome to ask questions on any of the other matters later if you wish to do so. Now the Prime Minister has identified the conclusion of the Doha trade round as the government's top trade priority. And since trade is vital for the growth strategy of the United Kingdom, the EU and emerging and developing countries, that means that Doha really is top of the in-trade. And that has been demonstrated in the Prime Minister's interventions at the G20 in Seoul and at Davos. Together with Germany, Turkey and Indonesia, the UK sponsored a trade experts group chaired by the LSE's own Peter Sutherland, which produced a very important report setting out the path to completion of the round. Beyond our borders, the Geneva negotiations have been revived and I really believe an agreement could be reached this summer. I'm not alone in this belief. Over the last six months, I've been to the United States, China, Japan, Brazil, Mexico, Geneva, and Brussels. All the ambassadors that I met in Geneva, from countries large and small, and all the ministers I met in their capitals, share the view that 2011 is a make-or-break year. I hope without any attempt at brainwashing that you will also leave here tonight with a real feeling of optimism that free trade can prevail, but of course it's not guaranteed. At the very least, I'd like you to take away three powerful arguments. Firstly, much of the final deal uh, that the Doha round would uh, conclude with has already been agreed. Secondly, what we are looking for is something that will bring huge benefits to developed and developing countries the world over because it's the most ambitious multilateral deal ever attempted. And thirdly, uh, and this is where I think perhaps you'll need the most convincing, completion is politically possible even though there have been times when it looks so difficult. So what's already been agreed? Only very few commentators appreciate the scope 
of what countries have already agreed in the Doha Round. Currently, it's safe to say that there is already agreement on around, 20, on around 80 to 90% of what would constitute the final deal. To take only one example from agriculture, the most advanced area of the Doha negotiations, the EU would be prepared to reduce its duties on agricultural imports by close to 60%, with the highest and most distorting tariffs cut proportionally more. This is the most radical opening of a market of this size ever negotiated. Other protected markets, such as Norway, Switzerland, Canada, and Japan, would also undergo radical market opening. In addition, trade distorting domestic support to agriculture uh, is being slashed. The EU has accepted the need to reduce their ceiling for support by up to 80% and the United States up to 70%. For both countries, the reduction in the ceiling will only impact modestly on the level of support currently granted to their farmers, but in both cases it will force them to change the design of farm policy to reduce its adverse impact on agricultural trade. But the Doha deal goes far beyond correcting distortions in agricultural trade. On industrial goods, the core of an ambitious agreement, again, is already there. Among developed countries, which represent two-thirds of world demand, tariffs would be virtually eliminated, with no tariff remaining above 8%. In the US market, the amount of duties paid on imports would go down by $12 billion, almost halving the current amount of duties paid. China already has relatively low levels of duties, but as the world's largest exporter, and as such, one of the largest overall beneficiaries of the Doha Round, if it is concluded successfully, China has a responsibility to go even further than it has gone already, and the current draft would lead to a 22% reduction of duties levied on imports to China. Other big emerging economies would undertake much less new market opening, chiefly because their current applied tariffs are on the whole much lower than the rates that they bound legally into their WTO schedules in the previous Uruguay round. India has already reduced its tariffs substantially over the last decade, and it deserves some credit for this. Nonetheless, Brazil and India would both cut their current levels of duties by 8%. And under the terms of the current package, the protection faced by EU and US exporters would be reduced by 22%. Some additional sectoral initiatives, that is to say cuts beyond the agreed formula in key industrial products such as chemicals, industrial machinery and information technology can help bridge the remaining gap. And that seems achievable in at least the seven areas where momentum genuinely exists. Among these seven sectors, 
Three, chemicals, electronic and electrical products, and industrial machinery cover 50% of world trade of industrial products, and therefore that represents considerable potential economic gain. In services, I must admit, there is quite a long way to go. Both developed and developing countries need to create new, real new opportunities for exporters, but also to bind in some of the voluntary steps that they've already undertaken. This agreement would do more than any other element to significantly raise the value of the Doha round and close the deal. The notion of legally binding existing voluntary actions is very significant since it ensures against the ever-present danger of future protectionist measures. Finally, uh, there are the immeasurable benefits, sorry, the trade facilitation negotiation is another area where there is a clear success story for the Doha round. WTO members have tabled more than 70 new proposals for improving the transit of goods between markets. Even for a developed market like the United States, the World Bank has estimated that the costs of shipping a standard cargo container are about 5% of the average shipment value for exporters and 6% of the average shipment value for importers. As a result, projections for increased trade due to the proposed improvements in trade facilitation are substantial, up to $450 billion annually. Importantly also, these gains occur disproportionately to developing countries. The least developed countries also stand to benefit uh, as for 97% of goods they'll not pay any duties or be subject to any quotas. Finally, there are the immeasurable benefits of significantly reinforcing the multilateral framework. Based on these examples alone, I believe that it is already quite evident that the Doha round constitutes a substantial package of considerable importance to the global economy and to developing countries in particular. It is this that makes me and others believe that it really is worth striving to get the round completed and these changes, which are at the moment of course only provisional, definitively agreed because nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. So let's look in a little more detail at the ambition. What more needs to be done? As it stands, based on the offers made in 2008, the deal goes far beyond what any other multilateral round has ever achieved in terms of reduction of obstacles to trade. Estimates point to a minimum $360 billion worth of new trade as a result of the current Doha texts on agriculture and industrial goods. This would be substantially increased by a proper package of new market access in services. It also goes far beyond what any bilateral trade deal could ever achieve. While deals between nations or a group of nations can be deeper in terms of tariff reductions and the removal of non-tariff barriers, the multiplier effect of 153 countries 
participating in the Doha round, both developed and developing, is overwhelming and far greater than could be achieved by any bilateral trade deals. It is this powerful combination of what's already been provisionally agreed and what more we could do now that makes me and others believe that achieving the completion of the round is really something worth striving for. But we've been at this stage for over two years now, and it's this year, uh, in 2011, uh, that I believe that it is really politically possible to conclude the round. The G20 in November last described 2011 as the window of opportunity. That's true, but there are two sides to that coin. Because if the deal is not done in 2011, which is indeed the window of opportunity, it may never be achieved. And that's not something that can be proved. But when you've been involved in this area of activity for as long as I have, you do get a feel for these kind of things. I became commissioner at the start of the final year of the Uruguay round. So that feeling that this is the moment, or not at all, is a feeling that I recognize. One of the factors that one has to consider in leading to such a view is that from 2012, the US, China, and India will enter into their domestic political cycles. It is highly unlikely that in an election year or a year of government change, any leader would be prepared to use political capital on such complex international issues which are not always popular or of interest domestically. If we were to wait until the political changes settled down in 2014, the round will be 13 years old. The deal provisionally agreed in 2008 will be out of date and the global economy will have moved on. So I really think we can't afford to wait. But to make the most of the present opportunity requires ambition, flexibility, and trust on the part of all the main players. Ambition because we need to aim high. Everyone needs to put in 100% of the effort. As the EU ambassador to the WTO said to me, and I applaud his remarks. I'm not optimistic. I'm not pessimistic. I am determined. That is the right approach. And then we need flexibility to negotiate. Every country has their requests and their so-called red lines. That's to be expected, encouraged even, as it shows that they're approaching the negotiation seriously. But every country needs to recognize that their requests must be balanced by their offers. Of course, it is the job of negotiators to fight hard to make sure that they get the best deal for their country. But this must be in the spirit of achieving the deal, uh, not just uh, being uh, obstructive. And sometimes uh, it is uh, something which the hardened negotiators uh, do, uh, which the politicians may not explicitly have authorized or even been aware of. I remember one occasion uh, during the negotiation of the Uruguay round when uh, my uh, colleagues in Brussels and my advisors 
simply couldn't understand why a particular country was being so obstructive. The ambassador in Geneva who was responsible for the negotiation on behalf of his country was being obdurate and profoundly unhelpful. And they said, we just don't understand why. Sometimes you can see that a particular country has a particular interest in doing something that you don't like, but in this case we just don't understand. You'd better go to the country concerned, which I think had better remain nameless, and find out what's behind it all. So off I went, and there was uh, a dinner the night before the serious meetings were due to take place, and at the dinner, my very courteous host, the minister for the country concerned, said, you're extremely welcome here, it's very nice to have you, but can you explain uh, why it is that you have chosen to come at this particular moment, welcome as you are? Uh, and I said, well, I can, uh, because uh, your ambassador in, in Geneva won't budge an inch, and he's holding up the whole deal. Is he, said the minister? I had no idea he was doing that. That's completely ridiculous. I can tell you the policy has changed now. You are welcome to stay to the dinner and to talk to my colleagues tomorrow, but mission accomplished. So sometimes the politicians don't know what the obdurate negotiators do. So trust is an important part of the whole business. Negotiations are a lot smoother if the negotiators on each side know each other, if there's personal chemistry, and most important, uh, if there uh, is trust. Particularly in the case of this negotiation, where I believe that speed now is of the essence, each side needs to be able to dispense with the posturing and seriously discuss what they have to offer and what they would like in return. Now, in the Uruguay round, the main bulk of the negotiation was between the European Union and the United States. And I remember uh, when I, in all innocence, uh, um, started the job, uh, and my advisor said, well, he was going to talk to the Americans. And I said, of course I must talk to the Americans. That goes without saying. But, you know, there are a very large number of other countries concerned why, why can't I speak to them as well? And they said, well, if you insist, okay, we'll organize it in Geneva, you can meet groups of ambassadors, but really, you need to see the Americans. So I said, okay, well, let me see these groups of ambassadors. So off I went to Geneva and saw the groups of ambassadors, and every single one of them said, you've got to talk to the Americans. So that's what I did, and eventually we did reach agreement. But this time, the pressure is building on a different, larger group. Still, of course, including the EU and the US as a major protagonist, but also including China, Brazil, and India. And the United States and China in particular will be critical to achieving a breakthrough in the coming weeks. As in other areas of global economics and deep politics, the relationship between China and the United States is very significant and even more so in political terms than in economic terms. What each of them is offering to the other is critical in convincing the most difficult parts 
of their respective domestic constituencies of the value of the deal. During my visit to China in December, I met Vice Premier Wang Qishan. He assured me that China would not be an obstacle. And shortly after that, the Chinese government made a statement recognizing the importance of a timely conclusion to the Doha development round and promising to work hard towards this. Now that's not surprising, as it's in their interest to conclude they stand to be one of the major winners. And I met the Chinese ambassador uh, to the WTO in Geneva yesterday, and I'm convinced that that approach continues. On the United States side, the problem is not of what they want to do or what the policy is, but priority. The United States assures us that they are committed to the round, and President Obama gave warm words in Seoul about his readiness to take a good deal to Congress. But any president can only give priority to a handful of issues, health care, financial, whatever it might be. And at the moment, even within trade, the Doha round is not really one of them. Instead, the United States is focused more bilateral agreements with Korea, Colombia and Peru. Now nobody can contest that the Doha round is of a totally different order of magnitude from any of these free trade agreements or of the three combined. To take only one aspect, the Doha round would get rid of all industrial tariffs across the Atlantic, which is the largest bilateral trade relationship in the world. Concluding the Doha round will, above all, create jobs, something that we all, of course, sincerely want and need. A recent study shows that the Doha Round would increase U.S. national income by $37.9 billion. Not only that, it would add 393,000 jobs to the U.S. economy. While some states do better than others, every single state in the U.S., would gain jobs as a result of concluding the Doha Round. In California, it's nearly 45,000. <coughs> Texas, over 30,000. Even Wyoming, smaller state by population, stands to gain 600. It will take pressure from business and other world leaders to raise this issue up the agenda. Uh, and I remember uh, when engaged in the financial services negotiation, which was a separate negotiation after the conclusion of, of the uh, uh, Doha round. When I was uh, uh, talking to my uh, American counterpart, who happened to be a very good uh, personal friend, and uh, I said that the European and American financial services industries were agreed that it was important that there should be an agreement. And he said, uh, why do you say that? I said, well, you know, there's a signed document that the two trade associations have signed agreeing that. And he said, well, you know, that's just trade associations. That's what they're in the business for. What about the real companies concerned? So I said, okay. Um, and I spoke uh, to the trade associations and said to them, uh, you have got to convince the Americans to be serious about this. You've got to get the real protagonists the big hitters, the major players, uh, to say that they want it. And two weeks later, I had a phone call with this friend of mine, the 
American Treasury Secretary at the time, and he said, what have you been up to? I said, what do you mean, what have I been up to? I said, he said, well, since we last spoke, I've been bombarded with telephone calls and uh, faxes from the leading players in the American financial services world saying that they want this negotiation to go ahead. So I said, I plead guilty. I uh, did ask them to do that. Uh, and uh, uh, he said, okay, well, let's get talking. And we did reach an agreement. Now, I believe that 2011 is the defining year for the Doha Round. If we don't make sufficient progress towards the final agreement in order to conclude the round this year, the fate of the round will be at stake. We are faced with an objective deadline, not a deadline that is artificially set, but one which is imposed by the current international context. There are no other negotiating formats or other channels to achieve equivalent gains. Abandoning the Doha round attempting to relaunch a WTO agenda around new negotiating objectives would be extremely unlikely to succeed. At a time when the world is facing huge economic, social and environmental challenges, the fate of the Doha round could also have defining consequences on the capacity of nations to act cooperatively or not on other more difficult issues like environment, poverty, and peacekeeping, because we have in the past been able to reach agreements on trade, and if we fail this time, the consequences in other areas would be very bad. These other fields of complex international cooperation would be seriously affected by the failure of such a crucial deal for development and global growth. The shockwaves of failure here would be felt for a long time and in many different areas with immeasurable consequences. So I will remind you one final time of the arguments that I'd like you to take away and pronounce to the world because everybody has an influence. First of all, much of the final deal is already agreed. Secondly, what we're looking at is the most ambitious multilateral deal ever, bringing enormous benefits the world over. And thirdly, it really is politically possible. Businesses, NGOs, community and world leaders need to work together to achieve great benefits for all. I would welcome your support in whatever roles you play to argue for an ambitious and rapid conclusion to the round. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much. Um, so we have about 45 minutes, and Lord Britain has um, agreed to answer questions. Um, who would like to start? I think if you could just say, we've got a bit of a mixed audience, so if you could say uh, where you come from, what your uh, interests are, that would help, I think. Who would like to start? We've got microphones at the edge, yes, right in the middle, of course. <laughs> pass it, if you can pass it along. Uh, thank you, Lord Britain, for that interesting talk. Um, I was wondering if uh, you could comment on the continuing role today of the special safeguard measures being a sticking point between particularly India and the US, um, how important those were in 
the sort of breakdown of talks and um, whether any progress has been made towards an agreement in that area? Well, I, I think they are a factor, but I don't believe that they are the most important factor. Uh, I think, you know, that certainly that's an issue and an important one, but I don't think uh, it can bear the full weight uh, of the failure of the talks, just that. Thank you. Uh, Sheila Page, Overseas Development Institute. I wanted you to say why, elaborate a little bit more on why you think it is politically possible to get an agreement this year. Because given the, the timetable, the way the negotiations happen, if something were largely agreed by July and the details by December, it would be going through Congress during an election year. Well, and I this year is sorry. also everything, including the Doha Round, that was on China's and the US's agendas two weeks ago has now dropped down at least one place because of the events in uh, Libya and in the Middle East more generally. Do you really think that anyone in Washington or Beijing at the moment is thinking this, the one thing we must do this year is Doha? I'm, I'm not saying that they do and I'm not saying they will. But what I am saying is that it is possible. Um, and I think that uh, uh, if the likes of me and you and everybody else can persuade the parties that it's worth doing, it is doable and it is doable this year uh, because the negotiations uh, have advanced to the point when what extra is needed is quite small. So what is needed now is for the countries to be persuaded, A, that there isn't all that much more to be done and B, that it is worth doing because although there isn't much more to be done in terms of negotiating, uh, none of what has agreed so far has any solidity unless it's brought to a successful conclusion. Now, I think uh, that uh, if, uh, and I'm, talking, I'm saying this not out of whistling in the dark uh, and wild optimism for no reason, but on the basis of talking to uh, all the principal actors concerned, uh, if in the course of the next few weeks and months, uh, the gaps can be bridged and the will can be shown, then I think uh, by the uh, end of the year it will be possible to reach agreement and I think that it will be politically possible to get that through because uh, of course uh, you've got to persuade the US Congress but um, we are operating on the basis that we assume that this is going to be good, not that it's going to be bad. Uh, it would be impossible to persuade them that something that was undesirable to the United States uh, should be approved, but it would be impossible to get the US negotiators to agree to something that was undesirable for the United States. So I think if we reach agreement in this time scale, I don't believe that irrationality will have descended so far and so fast that by the end of the year, even something that is beneficial will inevitably be rejected. Um, thank you for your talk. Uh, my name is Ayesha Gulek-Mikchi. I'm a master's student here in international relations in LSE. I was wondering, you mentioned least developed countries in your speech, but I was wondering if you can talk a bit more about the role they play in uh, Doharan, least developed countries, countries yes. and considering the fact that they face huge challenges in trade environments. 
Yes. Well, uh, they are, of course, uh, not uh, the main uh, negotiating countries. Uh, they are, I'm afraid, at the receiving end to a very large measure. But it is greatly to the credit uh, of the world trading community as a whole uh, that the interests of the least developed countries are very, very important for many people people in this country and people in other developed countries who um, are determined not to let them down uh, and uh, indeed to stand up for them. Uh, and that really is the case. Uh, uh, people are not quite uh, as selfish or hard-hearted as they're sometimes portrayed. And that's why uh, if a deal can be constructed in a way that is manifestly beneficial to the least developed countries, which gives them trading benefits uh, over and above what are given to the, developing, to the developed countries, then that is something uh, which I believe uh, would be an attraction for many people uh, and therefore, uh, apart from being something that is uh, desirable in its own right, would be something that would help to bring the deal to a successful conclusion. Yes, uh, we've got two. Can we take um, uh, the lady in the middle, please? Of course, there's a distinction that Lord Britain made between least developed countries and developing countries uh, yes. in, in the negotiations, with some of the developing countries, the bigger countries, being, of course, being quite key players. And uh, some of the developing countries, uh, particularly the ones that are, really are developing countries and for whom that is not a euphemism, can reasonably be expected uh, to engage in liberalisation themselves. Thank you so much for this talk. Um, the EU has agreed to uh, abolish much of its trade distorting agricultural support, but at the same time it's moving much of this support to green box payments. Do you feel that these payments are actually non-trade distorting and do you think that in the future they can ever be abolished? Well, um, uh, there is... Uh, of course, ample room for discussion uh, and argument as to what is trade distorting or what is not. Um, and you could say uh, that although these green box payments uh, are not the most trade distorting or the most directly trade distorting, they have an impact on trade. And I'm not going to uh, argue one way or another about that. But what I am saying is that if uh, the uh, European Union were to agree to abolish what are evidently clearly trade distorting measures uh, or if you want to extend the definition what are the most trade distorting measures that would be a huge contribution and would be worthwhile. If you ask me the question of whether they would be prepared to do so, I think the answer on the evidence is yes. As part of a deal, uh, the European Union would be prepared to do that. If you ask me, would the European Union be prepared to go further than that, the answer is probably no. Um, thank John, John Cook from uh, the City UK and, and LSE alumni. Um, I wanted to ask about services. You said, I think, that um, 
services in services there was quite a long way to go in terms of the least developed area of the negotiations. And yet if that's to be achieved this year, uh, a way through both the um, the sequencing of the Hong Kong Declaration on the one hand, and on the other, the sheer volume of work that is necessary to put together a package on services uh, will have to be achieved. And I wondered if you had any more to say about your hopes on that. Well, I haven't a, a great deal more to say, except really two things, but both of those, I think, are, are reasonably important. First, it's exactly right, uh, as you say, uh, that there is an enormous amount of work that would have to be done uh, because of the complexity and because of the comparative state of the negotiations in services as compared with trading goods. That's agreed. At least I agree with it. The second question is, can it be done? And I just think that if the whole thing gets momentum uh, uh, through uh, the process that I've described, I believe that it is technically possible, with a lot of hard work, uh, to achieve what's necessary in services. Uh, yes, uh, could we we'll start at the front? Sorry, I'm not sure if I've got everyone in the right order. We'll start at the front and then work back. Okay, uh, my name is Jose Navarro. I work in, in financial services, which, uh, yeah, so I, I have uh, experienced the trade and trade negotiations maybe uh, from the, the immigration side. I, I have lived in, in different countries and uh, always uh, population and immigration always part of negotiations, of uh, trade negotiations, and I think it's also part of Doha, but sometimes one feels they, they get hijacked in the and I think they are a very important part of uh, negotiations that maybe um, they, um, by not having a more prominent side, uh, the same as financial services maybe have been left out and negotiated separately, that immigration could be an extremely powerful driver of, uh, of more integration that is uh, actually left out and maybe for my liking that uh, many of the 15 years ago when, when the round was about to start uh, and uh, maybe trade among developing, developing countries was not that prominent. It has become much more prominent, especially also South-South trade. And uh, now maybe the world has changed so much that maybe immigration that played such a big role in previous uh, periods of globalization, maybe a, a, a hundred years ago it was possible just to go to the US and settle there and uh, today it's, uh, it's extremely difficult, I mean, for anyone to move across national boundaries. And I guess it's, uh, it's one part of the new negotiations that is not, um, yeah, that, that doesn't have enough or sufficient weight to really drive things forward uh, for everyone's, uh, yeah, is, is that what maybe uh, including that or giving more prominence to, to immigration and to international immigration be something that uh, especially the least developed countries would appreciate where, where they can actually uh, send people abroad that bring uh, money and knowledge back that drives the economies much more forward. Well, there's no doubt at all that uh, in the services negotiations the question of immigration 
plays a part. Uh, the famous uh, mode four and other things are very crucial to the discussions. Um, and there's also uh, no doubt that um, uh, immigration is frankly in many parts of the world, including here, more controversial. People are more concerned about people coming into the country, whether they want them to come or they don't want them, than they are about bananas coming in. And that's uh, perfectly natural and perfectly understandable. So um, it is part of a discussion in the services uh, uh, area, um, uh, and a balance has to be made, as in any negotiation. And all I can say is that uh, uh, it's certainly not going to be possible to reach an agreement on services without concluding as a component how you handle um, the question of people or of immigration, but exactly what outcome you get to it can only be determined in the negotiation itself. Uh, we have a question in the middle first. Hi, I'm a, uh, a lower sixth economic student and I would like to know what do you think about the em environmental impact that the Doha round will have because surely by reducing protectionism and increasing trade with other countries, this will have a major negative impact effect on uh, global warming. I don't think it need do that at all. I think that the suggestion that uh, trade is damaging to the environment uh, is a myth. Uh, I think that uh, uh, you have to take uh, appropriate measures to deal with issues such as global warming, um, and they are, of course, hugely important and uh, can determine everything else if they go the wrong way. But that does not mean that you try to limit trade. Uh, I think that uh, uh, the reverse is the case. So I just don't buy the argument that trade is bad for global warming. Yes. Hello, thank you. Hello, thank you. Uh, Leia Gott from uh, Department of International Relations. Um, I just hope you could comment about uh, the shift in economic balance of power and um, how that's had, had an impact on the dynamics of negotiations um, in the developing, um, in the Doha round throughout the years and also what impact that's had on least developed countries and if you think this has been a positive thing for them or uh, a negative uh, thing. Thank you. Well, there obviously has been a shift in the balance of power. We all know what you have in mind. Um, and it is bound to have an impact on the negotiations. And clearly, in today's world, to take the most obvious case, uh, China's role is much more important than it was 30 years ago. No question about it. Um, but I don't actually think that that has had a clearly demonstrable significant effect one way or another on the least developed countries uh, because um, frankly the least developed countries are hugely important uh, in the world but in terms of their weight both in terms of trade and in terms of immigration and everything else like that uh, they're less important they're important because they are least developed and need special attention as a result of that. So I don't think that the balance of changing in the balance of power in, in the trade world 
has had a significant effect on the least developed countries. To put it at its, crude, at its crudest, I don't think that those who have more powerful uh, influence now because of their greater trade weight than they had 20, 30 years ago, are either more sympathetic or less sympathetic to the concerns of the least developed. Um, we're over here. Yes. If you want to have a sort of quick follow-up, I think that's um, okay if um, we've probably got time for that, if that's all right. Go ahead. Good evening. Thank you very much, Lord Britain, for your optimism. Uh, my name is uh, Nguyen Dac Thanh from the Embassy of Vietnam in London. Um, um, the differences, I think, between the UAE round and the current Doha round is that the participant uh, in the negotiation is uh, uh, increasing rapidly. So uh, to, to get it done, is that the own party need to agree. So what do you think about the participation of, uh, 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 in the negotiation process, particularly for the developing country? Do they feel fully participated? And how they consult uh, with uh, uh, how negotiation process uh, be ensured that they are on the same page of everything with the, uh, as you see, that developing countries sometimes don't have uh, capital uh, uh, expertise and skills for negotiation. Thank you. Uh, there's no doubt at all uh, that the process is vastly more complicated than when we were dealing with the uh, Uruguay round for exactly the reason that you give, that there are so many more countries uh, involved and a lot of them developing countries. There's no doubt at all about that. And I remember at the time of the Uruguay round, I was told by the developing countries themselves, uh, you, Europe, reach an agreement with the United States and then we'll all fall into line and ask for a bit here and a bit there and we'll have a deal. That is not the case now uh, at all. It's more complicated. Uh, the developing uh, countries are much more active as actors rather than at the receiving end. So um, uh, that should prevent uh, those who were involved in the past, like myself, being smug and saying to our successors, well, why can't you do it? We did it. It is more difficult. It is more complicated. But it's not impossible. Right. We've got a question right at the back. And yeah, then over um, here. My name is Anshira. Um, I'm a master's student in international relations. And my question also relates to services. Um, you stress the significance of reaching a services um, agreement and also the signaling effect of reaching such an agreement has been stressed throughout the years um, by people like Pascal Lamy. And, um, but all we read um, are encouraging appeals to um, the new emerging um, economies by the US and by the EU who do not seem um, to be willing um, to really amend their um, position of 2005 and expand their offers. Um, so where do you see a chance to um, overcome uh, both uh, the reluctance of the US and the EU to maybe um, increase or um, amend their offers and also um, to like really get um, countries like Brazil or India to become more involved and more active in the services negotiations? Do you see that there are possible linkages or trade-offs um, with NAMA or um, uh, 
do you um, also think, for example, um, the EU um, uh, official um, was cited uh, last week that um, he uh, might uh, be able to amend positions in related uh, services and um, uh, business uh, goods areas. So do you see um, any chances or possibilities? Yes, I mean, I don't have a, 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 a blueprint for the jigsaw puzzle, if I can call it that, but I do agree with your broad point, if I've understood it right, and I'm not sure if I fully heard the opening part of your question, but if I've understood it right, I think I do agree uh, that uh, the very complexity of the negotiation, the greater complexity that there has been in the past, and the greater interests of particular countries across the board, may enable them to be trade-offs uh, between the interests of a particular country which there wouldn't otherwise have been and in that way uh, to ensure uh, that uh, a deal is possible. So it makes it more complicated but it may make it more feasible. Good evening. Um, my name is Robert Bezalow. Um, I'm a student here at LLC. Um, I have two questions which are only indirectly linked to the Doha round. Um, first, I would like to know it's not only very important here for the Doha round, but also for Russia's accession to the WTO because Putin and Medvedev have underlined I can't, Can you speak <coughs> louder and more slowly? Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I would like to know what uh, you think about uh, Russia's ambition to join the WTO this year, and secondly, whether Russia's accession, uh, if it may happen, uh, will affect the Doha round. Thank you. Well, Russia... Um, well. I don't think, I frankly think, I'm giving you an honest answer, uh, which uh, uh, I might or might not give if I was actually um, uh, a government official, but I'm not. Um, uh, I think that uh, uh, it is unlikely uh, that Russia's accession will be sufficiently soon for it to have an effect on the conclusion of the Doha round. Uh, uh, because I hope and believe that if the Doha round is to be concluded, it has to be in a quicker time scale than that would involve. As to the prospects of Russia's uh, accession, um, uh, I find it difficult to give an answer to that because it's, uh, on the one hand, tantalizingly close. Uh, there have been a lot of discussions, a lot of progress, a lot of negotiations. On the other hand, uh, there seem to be certain uh, difficulties and factors uh, which are holding things up. So uh, I'm really not sure whether it can be done in the time scale that you suggest, although it would obviously be desirable for that to happen. Um, my name's Jeff Cleek and I work in the uh, British High Commission in Mumbai. Uh, just an observation from, uh, from, from, from what's going on in India. There's a sense that, uh, that, that I get um, that the, um, the FTAs are seen in a much more positive light than, uh, than, than the, the DDA. And I wonder why do you think um, the, the FTAs have, have such a, a much more positive PR around them in, in, in countries like India? and what, what lessons you can perhaps learn from that in terms of um, creating a more positive uh, appeal for the, for the WTO? Well, I regard the popularity, if that's what it is, of uh, free trade agreements 
as being a good thing uh, because it shows that there is uh, irresistible is a strong word but very very strong uh, desire to liberalize trade uh, and it's partly a question of timing uh, if you can't do it multilaterally because that's so complex there is a feeling well at least let's do it bilaterally in a free trade agreement and that's good um, providing of course a very very important qualification that the free trade agreement complies with the WTO rules for such agreements which are designed precisely uh, to prevent uh, the patchwork quilt of free trade agreements damaging the multilateral system. Uh, so uh, I don't mind that, not that it's for me to mind or not mind, but I don't find it distressing uh, at all that that should happen and I think it's quite natural and it can even have a beneficial effect on the multilateral discussions because uh, people could say, my God, you know, um, hadn't we better reach a multilateral agreement? Otherwise, everybody's going to be reaching bilateral agreements and, and we're going to be left out. So that's the way I see these issues. I'm not sure who is next. Uh, did you want to come in? Uh, down here, then. Uh, second row. Just here. Uh, hello, uh, my name is Nail Valiev. Uh, I, I, I'm a master's student at Grenoble College of Management. Uh, uh, I'm doing international business. And uh, I was a bit surprised, uh, uh, as you said, that uh, 2011 was the, uh, is the year when the agreement must be achieved. It's not guaranteed, but it's highly positive, uh, 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 highly, like, um, uh, 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 um, highly possible. And um, uh, do you really think that it's uh, why it's like uh, why is it like so um, it must be so radical like uh, only this year and uh, not uh, it shouldn't be evolutionary like for example creation of European Union integration of the countries to European Union integration uh, uh, was achieved during 40 years and uh, like Doha round uh, started not, I think five years or six years. <laughs> Or, or, to, so, or uh, yeah, uh, ten years. Yeah. Well, well, and, and I mean, uh, who will be the key forces? Like, for example, if it's going to be G20, and there are many countries who are, I'm sh pretty sure that not going to be key forces, like Russia, you said, or uh, uh, Egypt, which are like in riots now, and uh, Turkey, Indonesia, and and I, I'm supposing that it's going to be China, or uh, China, USA. UK and European Union. Well, the UK is, of course, within the European yeah, Union. Yeah, so. but I mean, since um, the UK, the break... Yes. Uh, yes. Well, I think you can't prove these things. There's uh, no way of uh, proving that it's this year. Uh, it's a matter that, that it has to be this year. Uh, it's a matter of judgment. And all I can say is that I've spoken to quite a, a lot of people from different countries and the view that if it's not achieved this year, people will think, well, it's, we're not really getting anywhere um, and we better go and do something else, seems to be very widely prevalent. Uh, and such a feeling is self-fulfilling. 
Um, uh, so I'm only reporting and commenting on what people seem to feel. Now, it's not literally the case. I mean, if we were to find in November of this year that we were really made big progress, but we needed to wait until the spring of next year, fine. There's nothing automatic. But unless the, the, the general view is that unless a very significant momentum, if not complete closure, uh, is achieved this year, the thing will run into the sand, probably. I've got uh, two more questions, uh, three more questions, I think we'll, four, okay, four, and then we'll make a, uh, we'll stop at four, I think. Um, uh, my name's Tim, I'm from the student at LSE. I was just wondering, in terms of uh, what can EU member states do outside of the European Union institutions to help push forward the Doha round, so, you know, the UK, France, individually? Well, the answer is nothing. Uh, because the European Union is a trading organization uh, and in the area of trade, if not uh, everything else and if not in many other things which are controversy, uh, from the very inception, uh, because it's not just a customs union or a free trade area but both, uh, the European Union uh, from the very beginning has negotiated as a single unit. And therefore, if a member state of the European Union has particular views uh, on uh, the policy that should be pursued with regard to trade, it's got to try and persuade its uh, fellow members uh, that its views are the right views and to make those the policy of the European Union as a whole. Thank you. In the, in the middle here. Thank you. Um, I was wondering if you could... Uh, do you believe that there would have been a lot more progress already had the all-or-nothing agreement structure of the rounds been left after Uruguay? And would you like to see in the next round, if and when we get there, that there can be specific agreements rather than uh, having to agree the entire round at the same time? Well, I think it's a, a, a balance. Um, and we did see in the Uruguay round certain plurilateral or, or associated with the Uruguay round, certain plurilateral agreements which were not uh, uh, involving everything and uh, it was better to have those than not to have those uh, but uh, the surprising thing in a way to me coming back to this after quite a gap uh, is the feeling of the unicity if that's the right word uh, of uh, uh, the trade negotiations remains very strong and I don't see it crumbling. Uh, Lord Britain, John Riley uh, from the New Zealand High Commission. Uh, quite happy to be a cheerleader for the round and I've got your three arguments here which I'll be touting around town. <laughs> um, a question about the uh, Uruguay round. Was each of the majors worried that they would be the one blamed for blocking the round and would it be useful if that dynam dynamic existed now? There's an element of that always uh, that uh, uh, people uh, are, are obviously extremely anxious if uh, not to be blamed um, but I don't think it's the dominating element because I don't think the fear of being blamed 
will cause a country to agree to something which it thinks is not in its interest. It will find some way uh, of uh, uh, explaining uh, why uh, it has not been uh, uh, at fault. Um, on the other hand, it is a factor, and it is a factor, um, uh, particularly if there's an overwhelming consent, consensus, and frankly, a, a country that is not the largest or the strongest may uh, reluctantly join the consensus uh, even uh, if uh, it's not really happy uh, with what has been agreed uh, because it doesn't want to be the odd man out. So there's an element of that, but I don't think uh, it's something uh, which uh, applies if a country really feels that what is proposed is damaging to its very, very important economic interests. Take one more. Okay, we, could, can you take two more? Yes, yes. Okay, last two. <laughs> Come in so quick, if they're quick, we can take the two. The lady in front of her first. Um, Amy Jenkins, uh, Government Office for Science global food price volatility and the effect that might have on the hungry in the world. Um, and one of the strong arguments in that report was that there's real urgency to uh, trade liberalisation for agricultural subsidies. And I was just wondering, with the kind of 2007-2008 food price spike and then the food price spike we're experiencing in 2010, that's something you think will be in the minds of the Doha negotiators? Well, to the extent that it affects, and it does affect, uh, the countries who are participating in the negotiation, it will have an influence and they will bear that fact in mind. I'm not at all sure in what direction it will lead them to go, but an experience which has been searing for some people in some countries uh, is bound to um, help shape their approach. Right, we've got two, two really last questions now, and then in front of you. Thank you. Um, my name is Jingying, and uh, I'm a research student from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Um, trade has both um, positive and negative impacts on health, um, and we have seen increasing effort to push public health issues onto the trade and negotiation agenda. I wonder if you could share your um, observation on that, and uh, how important do you think um, trade uh, health issues should be onto the trade trade and negotiation agenda. Thank you. Well, um, uh, I agree with you that they have become more to the fore than they were. I think that they um, uh, have a part to play in certain aspects of trade, but frankly, uh, not in the majority of trade. So uh, we are hearing more about it than we used to but it's still only a small part of the whole picture. Yes, uh, you have uh, convinced us that, that the, to reach a deal is an interest of all, no? But uh, why, why the governments um, not reach a deal? What are the economic sectors, the interests behind not reaching a deal? I don't think one can say uh, that there is um, uh, a particular specific uh, factor which is preventing a deal because it uh, 
uh, there are different considerations for each country. So it's not as if there is one thing which uh, is causing the obstacle, because if there were, one would probably remove that uh, particular obstacle. Uh, it's Each country has its own particular interests, uh, and fitting this very complex jigsaw puzzle together is something which I believe can be achieved, but has not yet been achieved. Right, <clears throat> I think we ought to um, bring it to a close now. Uh, I'd like to thank Lord Britton very much for taking time to come and stimulating such a good set of questions. Thank you.